0: Well, good morning, Watermark, how are we doing? Oh, that's weekend. How are we doing, Watermark? It is great to be with you guys this morning. For those of you that are joining us online, thanks for tuning into the the stream. For our friends in Frisco and Plano, we're glad to be together this morning. We are, as Callie mentioned, marching on in our series on 1 Timothy that we're calling Focus. This is week four of our sermon series. And uh, as Callie mentioned, we're going to take a break next week to dive into the uh, God and government series. And so you'll definitely want to tune in there. But this week, this week, we're going to tackle what is arguably one of the most debated passages in the entire Bible. One of the passages that has um, been used, uh, kind of weaponized uh, over the centuries in a way that has sometimes not been helpful or life-giving or reflective of all of the goodness of our God. And so today, we're going to tackle a big topic So let's all buckle in, let's lock the doors, and let's get after it. I do want you guys to know that there, uh, I know, I I am confident that there are women who have walked into this uh, this morning that are watching online that have been uh, hurt by the improper and overextended application of this passage. Some of you have been in churches where you've felt minimized and disregarded. And frankly, some of you have and maybe are wondering, is there a place for you? in the body of Christ. And I want you to hear up front that our heart at Watermark has always been since day one to equip the women in this church to be all that God has created and called you to be. We could not be more thankful. We could not be more thankful for the way that the Lord has used thousands of women over the last 20 years at this place. Thousands. To be a blessing and an instrument to Dallas, to Fort Worth, and Frisco and Plano, and really to the ends of the earth. Um, we have a thing here called Join the Journey. It's our, it's our uh, uh, family Bible reading program. And about four years ago, uh, on this specific passage came up, this passage in First Timothy 2, 8 to 15. Christy Shermack, one of our leaders on staff, a godly woman, she was the woman who tackled this passage in her devotional. And I wanna read you a section of what she said in her devotional from June 20th, 2014 in her Join the Journey entry on this passage. She said, as a woman who wants to change the world, I find that Paul's statements can be hard to embrace. However, I believe the Bible is true and that God preserved it. And I can't chuck inconvenient verses into the cultural differences bucket and move on. Rather than define truth, by my ever-changing culture, I must define my culture by his ever-steady truth. And I thought, man, that's so good. And what I want you to know, ladies, my sisters in Christ, I, I feel a tremendous burden and a tremendous responsibility to do my best to rightly divide this passage. And I have spent ample time in this work asking God for wisdom so that I can explain to you his ever-steady truth in this passage. And to the men in this body, I want you to know there is plenty of work There's plenty of work for us in this passage. And so pay attention, we're gonna dive in, we're gonna try and focus on what God has for us. I'd like to read the passage in its entirety. I'd like to lay out some opening thoughts and then we'll dive in, okay? So if you've got your Bibles, it'll be up on the screens, but if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy 2 and we'll start in verse eight. I desire then that in every place men should pray For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, in love, and holiness with self control. So, in these passages, Paul is going to continue to bring into focus what is the godly conduct. Of the church. And last week David Marvin did a fantastic job of reminding us of the priority of prayer. And he says, especially Paul writes to pray for kings and those in high position. And because Paul's acknowledging that as the leadership of the country goes, it makes it easier for those of us in the church to live peaceful and quiet lives, which is what he says in verse two. And so this section today is going to continue to focus on Christ-like conduct uh, that we should have in the church. This section's broken up into two parts. You've got uh, one verse that's directed at the men. And then the remaining uh, eight or so verses are directed towards the women. And so as we get going, let me highlight for you four things to kind of set the table before we dive into the kind of a verse-by-verse explanation of this passage. And so please pay attention. These things are important to help us better understand what Paul is about to write. One is our context. These verses were not dropped out of the sky. And it's not uncommon to hear these verses plucked from 1 Timothy 2 and from 1 Timothy and taught all by themselves without respect to the immediate context. And as I've mentioned already, these verses are connected both to the immediate preceding verses in which Paul says that, hey, Christians, he wants Christians to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And they are connected to the broader book, uh, the broader letter in general, where Paul says, as you've seen in the, in the, the bumper that we roll each week, that we want to know how we ought to behave in the household of God. This section expands on the idea of living a peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified life within the household of God. Number two, uh, let me just remind us that what the church looked like in the first century was not like this we didn't have fancy lights or smoke machine. We didn't have Shane and Shane up here wearing skinny jeans. It was not like that, okay? Church in the first century took place in homes. And the meeting spot within the home was usually in the atrium of a home. These were open-aired spaces that were open to the public, okay? And so as the church gathered, um, people could come in and come out. Uh, And so essentially what happened in the church was a public activity. It was an open-air activity, so to speak, which means... The disruptive and poor behavior of a few had an opportunity to um, uh, defame the good name of Jesus Christ and hurt the reputation of the church. And Paul is very concerned, not just in this letter, but in all of his letters, about how we are to behave in front of outsiders. Because our behavior reflects our belief. And if we, our behavior betrays what we say about God and Jesus, then that's going to hurt the ministry. Number three, uh, there has been a lot of really thoughtful and and really well-done work in the last two decades or so on the first century Roman woman. And what uh, those who study that kind of thing um, have come to uh, conclude with greater conviction is that there was going on a bit of a new Roman woman revolution where, uh, frankly, not unlike what we have today, women in that first century were seeking to really push the boundaries of what was considered normal for their roles. And so they were um, pushing back against what society for, for a while had said, this is what a woman can look like. And some of the ways they were pushing back were not helpful and were not in line with God's plan. And the negative effects of this trend undoubtedly had worked its way into the church at Ephesus And also in Corinth, because Paul talks about this same topic in the book of Corinthians, in a way that was hurting the ministry and was not honoring to Christ. So you got that going on. And then the last thing I want to point out before we jump into the verses is that most of what we're going to read this morning, with the exception of verse 15, most of what we're going to read is no one is arguing what does it say. It's pretty clear what it says. The question is, what does it mean for us today? Is Paul writing, uh, for example, that I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Is that for all Christians in all times and all places? Or is that for the women um, that were at the church in Ephesus and in, in, in Corinth? And so that's really the issue. Most people aren't wondering, what does it say? With the exception of 15, which we'll spend some time on. Most of them are wondering, how does it apply to me today? And hopefully hopefully the lord will allow me the opportunity to unpack this in a way that is encouraging and honors scripture that being said let's dive in to verse 8 i desire then that every that in every place men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling here's your takeaway men who follow christ pursue peace and unity as they lead the church in prayer men who follow christ Pursue peace and unity as they lead the church in prayer. So Paul starts off by talking to the men. And he picks up and expands on this idea of prayer that he started in, two cha- in verse 1 of chapter 2, a, little bit, a few verses earlier. And evidently within the corporate gathering when the church was together, the men of the church were either not leading in prayer or when they were leading, they were leading through their anger and their quarreling, both of which is wrong, are wrong. And what was true for these men is Paul wanted them to lead the church in prayer, but not if they were stuck in anger or broken relationships. If If there was and if there is a break in the relationship between two believers, God calls us to go pursue, to move towards each other with patience and gentleness and kindness and forgiveness, all of which are necessary for maintaining healthy relationships in the body of Christ. It is dishonoring to Christ. It's harmful for relationships, and it makes a mockery, Of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, which allows us to be reconciled, not just to him, but to each other when we live in quarrelsome and bitterness. And if it does that, then it also hurts the ministry. And those who are looking in from the outside, like this place, you guys say you love Jesus and that he has brought reconciliation, but look at the way you behave. And so Paul says, men who follow Christ pursue peace and unity as they lead the church in prayer. Men, how are we doing? Are you leading in prayer here at your home? Are you stuck in bitterness and quarrelsome? Are you not doing what Paul has very clearly said we ought to do? And if so, man, it is time to get on your knees and repent and beg for forgiveness. Men who love Jesus pursue peace and unity as they lead the church in prayer. And Paul keeps going. Now he's going to move on. and He's going to begin to speak directly to the women in the church. Likewise, in verse 9 and 10. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, which is good works. Paul wants women to know in the, in, the, in the church in Ephesus that the target is modesty and self-control in good works. Now listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with braided hair or pearls or gold, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with those items. But Paul is saying that the way these women were wearing those and coming into the congregation was dishonoring to Christ. Modesty, as it's been said around here, modesty is not about hiding your body, but it is about revealing your dignity, Modesty is not about hiding your body or not wearing gold or pearls. It's about revealing your dignity. And the negative effects, probably as part of this new Roman woman, were that she was pursuing and pushing boundaries in her outward appearance that was drawing attention to her and, and trying to allow her to exalt self in a way that wasn't helping the ministry. And so as we think about that today we need to remember the target, respectable apparel driven by modesty and self-control. We don't dress to exalt self. We should evaluate ourselves, women and men, but Paul's talking to the women here. We should evaluate ourselves based on those criteria. And so when you're going out, when you're coming to church, when you're going out anywhere, you should ask yourself, is the way that I am presenting myself, however that looks, and with whatever trend you're wearing in the season, going to promote modesty and self-control. And will my good works be bleeding out of me? That's what's going on here. And let me just pause for just a moment and just acknowledge that, listen, some of you uh, have come into Watermark and you don't know Jesus. You're not sure he is who he says he is. And I want you to know, you are welcome here. There is zero expectation that anybody should feel like they've got to clean up before they come into this place. Paul is talking to women who are Christians. And who have already said, I believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. And Paul says, great, if you believe that, your outward appearance should match your inward heart. And so if you are new here, we want you to know you are welcome. There is zero expectation that you feel like you should put on some charade to hide where you are. All are welcome at the church of Jesus Christ, including here. So I want to make sure that's clear. Because the last thing I want you to hear is, oh, this is a place where I can't come up and be authentic. We want you to be authentic with where God has you right now. Paul is talking to the Christian women in the church. And listen, he goes on to say that it's not just about apparel, right? It's about good works. And he's going to mention this good works a bunch of other times in this book. And listen, there's going to be stuff you wear today that I promise you, will look back on 20 years with horror. Like I've got an example. So this is David Leventhal in 1988. Let me take a look at this bad boy. Maybe if got it got here. Yeah. How's that? Look at the glasses and the hair. And yes, if you're wondering, that is a loudness T-shirt, the famous heavy metal Japanese band that rocked the 80s. Yeah, I look back at that with horror. Like there's just so much that's wrong with that. But I was full throttle, like I've got it, okay. That, thank the Lord, is not what I look like today. And you may be like, well, it's not that much better today, but it's a different conversation. Okay, my point is, is that good style is going to come in and going to come out. But what is always in style, what is always in style are good works. That never goes out of style. That's never an awful brown thick glasses and a loudness t-shirt. Okay, good works are always in style. Women who follow Christ strive to lead with modesty, self-control, and good works. And then he goes on. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So Paul here is going to talk about, he's going to give two commands. And then he's going to give you two reasons for those commands and then a verse 15 is meant somehow to lessen the impact of verse 13 and 14. Okay, that's the flow. First, the commands. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over man, but rather she used to remain quiet. Let's unpack some of this. One, let a woman learn. First thing you need to hear is that statement in the first century for a woman was revolutionary. Now, if you look in your Old Testament, women were involved in all sorts of the religious uh, uh, family and public life of the Old Testament. I promise, that's in your Bible. I think some of us think that the Old Testament woman was oppressed, and she wasn't. God invited her in with the exception of the priesthood. That was the one exception. But women were all involved in community life in the Old Testament. But by the time you get to the first century, by the time you get to the first century, the religious leaders of the day had moved away from God's call... And we've talked about that here, that the Pharisees and the oral tradition of the first century were not reflective of all of what God had in mind, which was why Jesus was so harsh and strong to the Pharisees. Okay, so when you get to the first century, the women had been shelled. They'd been put into the privatized. They couldn't go out of their home. And so this was, and they weren't allowed to learn. And so when Paul says, let a woman learn, you need to know that was a revolutionary statement. And it wasn't Paul's idea. It was Jesus' idea. Paul's picking up on that theme. Jesus values women and wants them to be able to learn, wants them to be able to become literate, unlike what was going on in a sinful and unhealthy way with the first century religious leaders. Two... Let them learn in quietness. Now, does that mean you got to walk in here and put duct tape on your mouth? No. Paul uses the same word a couple of verses earlier. I've already read it to you where he says, I want Christians to live peaceful and quiet lives. It doesn't mean silent. It means quiet. It means dignified. It means not causing a ruckus. If I go out in the backyard and my kids are hollering, I say, hey, you guys be quiet out there. I'm not meaning you can't talk or, or play. I'm saying don't be so disruptive. Okay, that's what quiet here with all submissiveness, okay? We tend to think about those terms in terms of the husband and wife relationship and scripture speaks to that. Ephesians 5 and other places that the man has been established by God as the head of the family and there's this idea that women should submit to their husbands and husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. But Paul's not talking about the husband-wife relationship right here. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about our behavior within the church. And so when he says women should be with all submissiveness, he's talking about the things he's explaining right now in the way that their apparel, in their good works, in their teaching. He wants them to follow the commands of God. And he says, I don't want them to teach or exercise authority. The verb teach here is used a lot by Paul. And I think it's safe to say that he's talking about the authoritative activity of teaching and the prohibition here is teaching over men. That's what Paul's talking about here. We have plenty of godly gifted women who teach all over this place. But as the elders have wrestled extensively with this passage and several other passages regarding God's design for the church, we begin to apply this verse in junior high. And so with our young men and our young women in junior high in Wake and in Shoreline, which is our high school ministry, in the Nine, which is our college ministry, we ask that men, teach when they're together, the authoritative teaching of God's women together. And when you get to men and women, no longer young, but men and women in our porch ministry or in adults ministry, and in this setting, we ask that men be the ones, because we think that's in line with what Paul is saying here, with what scripture is saying, that men be the ones that bring and explain the authoritative teaching to men. So that's what Paul's talking about here. Now, he's going to give you, he's going to give us two reasons for why he issued that command. Okay, so I don't want a woman to teach or exercise authority. For, and in your Bible, this is called, uh, if you go back to your junior high grammar with all the whore, this is a conjunction. You remember that? Or, or a connector word. You want to pay attention to connector words. They help explain the flow of the passage. And so Paul gives the command, and now he says, for, which is going to explain that. And when we get to verse 15, he's going to say, yet, which is meant to somehow Uh, serve as a a qualifier to lessen the impact of the prior verses. So four, Adam was formed first and then Eve. Reason number one for the command. Paul goes way back to Genesis to explain his reasoning for this command. He speaks first of the creative order from Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.7, that man was created first and then woman. In Genesis 1.27, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God's word regularly affirms the value and dignity and worth of a woman. God's word regularly affirms the giftedness, the intellect, and the capacity of women. And God's word affirms that a leadership structure has been put in place from the very beginning of creation. And Paul is simply going back to those verses in Genesis to say, this is the way God designed it are these verses in 1 Timothy 2 have their foundation in Genesis 1 and 2. This was not Paul's idea. So he goes, reason number one, because of the created order and the divine leadership structure that God has put in place. And then he goes and says, reason number two for the command. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so now he's gonna go to Genesis chapter three. So he's been in Genesis 1 and 2. Now he's gonna go to Genesis 3. And we see in Genesis 3, 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, real quick, if this whole Eve was deceived thing kind of puts a burr in your saddle. Let me remind you that Paul spends the better half of the entire chapter of Romans 5 and a whole bunch of verses in 1 Corinthians 15 to point out that the responsibility for sin coming in the world falls on Adam, not on Eve. Scripture could not be more clear that sin came into the world through Adam. Adam was the one to whom God had given the commands. And Adam, not only did he fail to properly share that with his wife, but when she was Uh, getting ready to make a decision that wasn't with scripture, he just sat there in silence and went along with her. Great job, Adam. God has designed men and women equal in dignity, value and worth, but with different roles. And when it comes to the local church, the task of teaching and exercising authority has been given to men by God. It's not because we're smarter It's not because we're godlier. It's not because we're more gifted. I mean, good heavens, have you met my wife? You know that those things, at least in my house, aren't true. Okay? But it's because of the way God has ordained in his wisdom and sovereignty, the leadership structure to go. Now, those are the two reasons for the command. And now Paul is going to, he's going to come to verse 15. And this doozy of a verse. Yet, She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. What in the what does that mean? Peter writes that sometimes Paul in in 2 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says, listen, sometimes Paul writes things that are hard to understand. And I want you to know for me, this is hard to understand. And part of me also wonders, if when Timothy got this letter, and he got to this verse if it made complete sense to Timothy because he and Paul had been doing ministry together for decades. And so Timothy's like, oh, yeah, totally. We've talked about that. And if it, one, great for Timothy. For us, if that's true, that script has been lost. And so now we're left with the task of trying to unpack what was Paul's original intent with this verse. And there have been men and women over the centuries who have spent time, effort, and energy trying to figure it out. Let me just first say... For sure. Here's what this verse does not mean. Let me get rid of what it doesn't mean for sure. One, yet she will be saved through childbearing. This does not mean that every woman is going to be physically saved through childbirth. How do I know? Because there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of women over the centuries and today in certain parts of the world that regularly die during childbirth. So whatever Paul is saying, he's not saying that. He's also not saying that yet she will be saved through childbirth. that a woman's salvation is accomplished through the process of giving birth. Scripture is abundantly clear in all over the place. This is one of the Mount Everest's of your Bible. That salvation and peace with God comes only with reconciliation with Jesus Christ, which was made possible in his life death and resurrection from the cross. So whatever this verse means, it does not mean that you're promised safety through childbearing and it absolutely does not mean that your salvation hinges upon you having a child. And let me just, again, let me just insert here that I suspect that for some of the women in this room and men too, even the idea of talking about childbearing is hard because I know there are people in this body that would love to figure out to work through the pain of childbirth, but you can't because of infertility, because of miscarriages. And I know that's hard. My wife and I have worked through a couple of miscarriages and I know the darkness of that. And so I just wanna point out like, we're gonna talk more about childbearing in the next little bit. I just wanna acknowledge, I know for some of you that's really hard and I'm sorry. And I, I, I don't know your personal pain experience. I do know what it's like for my wife and I to have walked through that season and I know how hard it is, okay? So what did Paul mean? I think the key to unlocking this passage is gonna be understanding the three words, saved through childbearing. So let's spend some time unpacking those three words. I think Paul intends to keep this verse tightly connected to the two verses. And I think Paul wants to stay in Genesis. I think that's his point here. He's gonna stay in the Genesis narrative. So let's pick these words apart, saved. That's the Greek word sozo. It is used a lot in your Bible. Paul uses it a lot too. Take this one instance out. Paul uses this uh, word 28 other times in his letters, and as best I can tell, because I've looked at them all, there's only one instance of Paul using this word where he uses it to refer to something other than spiritual salvation. To where Paul uses it, I think one time to refer to physical salvation. That's in Second Timothy 4:18. So 96% of the time, when Paul uses this word, he is referring to spiritual salvation. Okay, that's important. Saved through. Does Paul use that phrase? He does use that phrase a couple of times in his letters. And I think there's one usage that is really helpful for us to understand this passage. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 3.15, where Paul writes, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. It's the same saved through language. And in in that passage, Paul is talking to Christians whose teaching and works are not up to snuff, if you will. Paul's saying to them, listen, you're going to be saved through the fire. In other words, you're going to be saved not as a result of the fire, but you're going to be saved in spite of the fire. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 3.15. That you will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. The fire in this verse is not the saving mechanism, but it is the way as though sort of by the skin of your teeth, if you will. That is what Paul is talking about there. Okay, and I think that's instructive for this, helping us unlock this verse. And then lastly, childbearing. This word um, can be used in two ways. One, to refer to the physical act of giving birth to a child. And two, it can be used to represent the whole idea of parenting. Like, so childbirth and then raising a child. Here's the deal. Paul uses this, uh, this term, a variant of this term later in the book, in 1 Timothy 5.14, and it's pretty clear that he's using it to refer to childbirth. Not, again, I say it's pretty clear. It seems pretty clear to me that Paul is using that term to refer to childbirth. And so I think in this passage, Paul is not referring to the whole process of motherhood. I think he's referring to childbirth. So you're like, well, that doesn't help explain it. I, I'm, I'm working there. Saved through childbearing. So staying with the Genesis, because I think that's where Paul wants this to stay, Adam was formed first and then Eve. Uh, Eve was created from Adam's body. Eve was deceived. Adam fails to lead. Sinners the world. And God pronounces judgment, which for Eve included a multiplication of pain in childbirth and a desire to usurp the authority from her husband. In other words, the two places where the curse touches Eve and subsequently women throughout history is in the pain of childbirth and in her desire to rule her husband. And so every time a woman gives birth, the pain of that process was meant to remind her that she became a transgressor and she needs grace. Just like God said to the man, your work is now gonna be messed up with thorns and thistles. And so every time the guy goes out to work the land and gets his thumb on a thistle, he's to be reminded, this is harder because I decided to go my own way. The fact that when I farm, uh, I get thorns and thistles, the ground doesn't cooperate. The fact that when I give birth to a child, the pain is multiplied is because we decided to go our own way and it did not work out well. And listen, we need to remember that childbirth back then, like there was no epidurals, there was no C-section, there was no comfortable hospital bed or team of doctors on standby if things went wrong. Thousands of women died or suffered in pain Sometimes pain that lasted the rest of their lives. My wife has given birth unmedicated to five children. Not out of some principled stand against medication, but because for her it was the lesser of two evils. Because she couldn't imagine having somebody put a needle in her spine for an epidural. She's like, well, that seems horrible. This seems incrementally less horrible, so I'll go with that. And as a witness to five childbirths unmedicated, good Lord. (laughs) If men had to have kids, the population would have died off at Adam. Okay? You talk about the multiplication of pain. Okay? So, let's go back to 1 Timothy. Yet she, Eve, cuz Paul is continuing his illustration here. So when he says she'll be saved, he's talking about Eve. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing if she continues in, if they continue in faith and love and holiness. So Paul cites the creative order. He cites Eve's deception. He cites childbirth, which is the constant reminder of sin and deception and transgression. And he finishes with the call to continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, which is almost the exact same language he calls older men to in Titus two, where he says older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfast. Okay, so now let me pull it all together for you, okay? Here's what I think Paul is trying to communicate This is me paraphrasing. Paul, you will still be able to experience spiritual salvation of childbirth, which uh, you'll still be able to experience spiritual salvation in spite of childbirth, which is an unspeakably painful reminder of the sin that has caused you separation and death. Significant as that curse was, as that pain is, it does not prevent you from being able to experience your salvation. So you're going to think about the curse every time you give birth. But don't worry, women, it's not going to prevent you from salvation, which is accomplished through, like everybody else, through faith and love and holiness and self-control. All of which reflect a transformed heart that trusts in Jesus. And I want you women to know, God is not against you. He's for you. God is not continuing to curse you. He wants you to be saved. He has gone back to Genesis. I've taken back Genesis into the letter and back to the curse from sin. But your life, indeed, your salvation is still assured if you will trust in Jesus. I think that's what Paul's getting at in this verse that he could have made more clear. Okay, I think that's what he's getting at. And so women who follow Christ submit to the divinely ordained leadership structure. Now, let me talk real quickly about why these verses are so hard for us to absorb. Because if we're honest, there's a little bit of this that for some of us is like, ah, that doesn't, I don't like that. Let me give you three Cs. I tried to be like super creative, came up with three Cs. One, why is this passage so hard? One, there's been a crummy example for male leadership. And I wanted to use a different word than crummy, but I won't. First and foremost, men have just led Poorly. It didn't just start, it didn't finish with Adam. We've been leading poorly since. God has called men to live and lead like Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you look around the world today, and sadly, if you look around some places in the church, you will see men abusing their power, stepping on people, um, using others to accomplish her own end. And when you see somebody abusing their role, it makes you not want to follow them. And I get it. It wouldn't make me want to follow them either. So number one, why this is so hard, because men, we have done a not great job of loving the women in the church broadly the way that Jesus Christ has said, this is how you love women. Number two, culture. Our culture is providing an unbelievable amount of pressure to do away with the whole roles thing. The chorus is that men can be women, women can be men. There's no distinction. And while we acknowledge that our culture is not coming from a biblical place, a biblical worldview, we are required to push back lovingly and firmly and teach our children that what God says about men and women is true. God's word acknowledges that men and women are equal in dignity and worth and value, but they are distinct when it comes to role. And our culture does not adhere to that. And so we're swimming upstream. When my kids turned 13, I decided some years ago that I'd take them away for a little father-daughter, father-son time just to invest in their hearts. I've done it now with four of my kids, two girls, two boys. I just got to go away with Josh, my 13-year-old. He turned 13 in May, but thank you COVID for screwing up our plans. So we just now got to get away together. And when I've taken my two daughters away, I invest in their hearts. And I tell both my kids, I share three things with my boys and I share three different things with my girls. I want to bring them back to scripture. Here's what I share with my girls. I want my daughters to know that they are infinitely valuable. And I explain to them why they're valuable. Not what the culture says they're valuable, but why God's word says they're valuable. I want them to know they're exceedingly beautiful. And I define for them what Scripture says about beauty. And I remind them of the garbage the culture says about what beauty is. And I take them back to Scripture. And I remind them that they are called to radical devotion in Jesus Christ. We have got to teach our children what God says about roles and uphold the dignity of women while affirming the God ordained structure. Three, there's confusion about how God views women. Because passages like this and others have been improperly or harshly applied in such a way that it leads some to believe that God doesn't like women or he thinks they're somehow inherently less or that God and therefore his people are somehow misogynistic. And I've said it before, but let me affirm it again. God's word consistently, repeatedly, explicitly affirms a woman's glory, dignity, value, and worth. There is no less than in God's economy over gender. Women have always played an essential, an indispensable and an unspeakably important role in the outworking of God's economy. Broadly and specifically here at Watermark, open your Bible. Go read about Rahab and Joshua 2, who hid the spies so that they could scout the land. Go read about Abigail in 1 Samuel 25, who kept David from committing a massacre over her dumb husband. Go read about Deborah, Judges 4 and 5, who led the nation of Israel as a judge. Go read about Jael in Judges 4, who killed this powerful Canaanite general Sisera. Go read about... Huldah in 2 Kings 22, who was a prophetess whom King Josiah consulted rather than Jeremiah, who was her contemporary. Go read about Mary, the mother of our Savior and the Messiah. Go read Romans chapter 16 and see how Paul elevates Phoebe, who was a deaconess at the church of Sancria. Priscilla, who was a church leader at Ephesus and hosted the church in her home. And Julia, I don't know what was wrong with me, who, uh, who worked with Paul and who was imprisoned with Paul as a co-laborer in the gospel. Go read about Lydia, who was a wealthy Gentile woman who was likely the first convert in all of Europe and who hosted the early church in Philippi and on and on. And I know you're saying, yeah, that's the Bible. Of course you're going to quote from the Bible. Well, let me introduce you to some of my friends and co-laborers here at Watermark. Let me introduce you to Sherry Gia who serves in the International Student Ministry, serving and caring for international students from around Dallas colleges. Or Sharon James, who she has a passion for equipping women in the church and has facilitated racial reconciliation groups, racial reconciliation groups for the last two years. Or Antoinette Davis and Rachel Shelton and Ann Halford, who has spent countless hours reworking the women's Bible study curriculum in light of COVID, so that thousands of women could be able to participate in the women's Bible study here, virtually, online, in neighborhood groups all over the world. Or Shelly Gertz and Veronica Netzer, who helped lead our path to racial restoration ministry which loves and serves on moms whose kids have been removed from them by the foster system to help them get their kids back is ella brown is ella brown who oversees our partnerships and volunteer teams with ministries that reaches out to women working in the strip clubs Helene wendell shepherding and coaching leading others through women through grief share terry kendrick who helped develop and coordinates our unexpected pregnancy ministry to women who were abortion minded. Ashlyn Miller leads our communication efforts for our life initiative and keeps the message of life in front of our body in this community. Katie Lohman coordinates our efforts to educate, foster and adoptive families through our introduction to foster care and adoption. Jackie Michael leading strategy and execution for all of our refugee international school outreach initiatives. Shatil Agrawal, Christy Shermack, started our reclaimed impact area to help our efforts to end sex trafficking and to serve those that have been affected by it. And on, and on, and on. These women are not volunteers. They're pastors and missionaries and evangelists and disciple makers, and they are changing eternity. So what do we do from here? Listen, as I said at the beginning, our aim has always been to set the women of this church free to be all that God has created you to be. Because that's what God's word says the church should do. We want to encourage you, invest in you, train you, equip you, unleash you to be all that God wants you to be in your family, in your friendship, at your workplaces, in your marriage, in your neighborhoods, any place you rub shoulders with the world. We've got women serving all over this body, teaching and leading. And listen, when the church functions the way it's supposed to, as God intended it with godly men leading godly women, it is a glory to the world and it is a direct reflection of the Trinity. It's a reflection of God. Because you've got Jesus who said, I, I am gonna humble myself, Philippians 2 says, and I'm gonna take on the form of a man, being made in the form of a man, and I'm gonna go to the cross, okay? I haven't lost my value or my dignity, but I am willing to submit myself to the Father for the benefit of all of us. The only reason any of us even give a rip about anybody else is because Jesus Christ has let you know you are not the center of the universe. And Paul says when we follow the divinely ordained structure, it reflects the Trinity. Jesus didn't make his role on earth an opportunity for higher rank or power, even though he could have. He didn't get hung up on his role. He died for you and for me. And when he died, it was his sacrifice that made you ladies infinitely valuable. Exceedingly beautiful. And it's what allows you to be called to radical devotion to him. And in the same way, when we trust the father's design for our role, we're saying like Jesus, I want to find joy in the role that the father has called me to fill, whether I'm a man or a woman, because I know that when the individual members of the body operate in this way for the benefit of Christ, people are going to get to see Jesus and their eternity is going to be altered forever. The question that we should focus on is not, can we exercise authority or can we teach? The questions to focus on are, are we gonna let God lead us? Are we gonna let God teach us? Are we gonna trust his design? And are we gonna uh, trust his distinct purpose and our plan for his plan for our life? And are we gonna respond in faith and obedience? Father, thank you for your word. And, and Father, thank you for this, really difficult passage. I pray that if I said anything that was not reflective of what you had in mind in your word, that you would strip it from our minds immediately. I pray that the men of this church would get after it as they love and serve and exalt the women of this body. I pray for the women of this church. Father, I thank you for them, for the way they have served so faithfully for so long. As they expand your kingdom in Dallas and in Fort Worth and in Frisco and Plano and all over the world. Would you remind them of your tenderness towards them and your kindness for them, and your good plan for them, that the curse is not so great that they still can't know you and come to know Jesus. Father, help us to be the hands and feet to this world, this lost, dying world who is seeking to strip away anything that is reflective of you. God, help us to push back against that with tactfulness, dignity, with grace, and gentleness and kindness. We trust you. Help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.